Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Yes, you're right. I'm early. Good morning. Good morning. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. And yes, we have changed the clock, which is weird to say, but we have that kind of power in radio. And so uh, thank you for tuning in on time. We're going to jump in in what I am going to call the seven-minute sermon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to open each day with our Growing Your Faith verse of the day, getting into the Word of God so that we can get out there into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. So where in the word are you today? Where in the word are you today? I'm jumping in with our Growing Your Faith verse of the day from Matthew chapter 5. You will recognize these if you are a student of Scripture, a disciple of Jesus. You will recognize these as three of the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, you're growing your faith verse of the day, which you can sign up for to receive in your inbox at MyFaithRadio.com. All right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, says Jesus, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus opens what uh, has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew. It's the first gospel in the New Testament. Uh, Chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew is affectionately known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is right at the beginning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 is what we have in focus here. And so uh, these three Beatitudes uh, come in a a larger list— I'm not going to tell you how many they are because then we get into a debate about how many Beatitudes there are, and I don't really want to have that debate, so there you go. These are three of the promises called the Beatitudes. They are declarations of God's grace. They are declarations of blessing, blessings bestowed by God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then, you know, how that blessing comes, uh, filling and mercy and seeing God. They are declarations um, of principles of living in the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus announces them. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. Uh, He announces it's coming, and one day he's coming again uh, for us to live in the midst of it fully and finally. And so right now is this like provisional reality. This is a—you and I, as believers in Jesus, have an opportunity to live as a demonstration of the kingdom values, the kingdom of heaven here in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And so the Beatitudes give us not only this incredible declaration of God's grace and blessing bestowed by God, um, but also a sense of um, the character of the citizens of the kingdom. So citizens of the kingdom hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful and they are pure in heart among a list of other Beatitudes. All right, so when approaching the Beatitudes, um, let's, uh, you know, let's avoid sliding into an extreme here. Um, uh, this is not like Jesus is calling us to like some sort of meritorious behavior that, you know, then gets us something. 
Um, these are not like burdensome ethical demands. Uh, these are um, these are acknowledgments of what kingdom people are like. All right. So um, the, also there's a here and now reality when we play when we pray Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of the way that we are living that reality out is we're living by these kingdom principles in the here and now. We're not waiting. We're not we're not waiting around for Jesus to return in order to begin hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being filled. We're not waiting around um, until Jesus returns, you know, to to show mercy and experience mercy. We're not waiting around for Jesus to return um, before we would be pure in heart and have the opportunity to see God. Um, which is which is probably going to lead you immediately to say, now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. See God? What? What? Um, I got to tell you, it thrills my heart. It absolutely thrills my heart, the promise of seeing God. It thrills my heart every time I hear it. Every time I hear uh, this, this particular promise that, you know, uh, that we're going to be blessed to see God, like I, that thrills my heart. Imagine that for just a moment. I think this is uh, Bart Millard's, um, you know, like uh, gravity shifting acknowledgement in Mercy Me's maybe most famous song ever. Um, I can only imagine. I mean, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. That is this like breathless acknowledgement that seeing God face to face is going to be I don't even know. I can't even imagine, right? And then if you're a student of the Bible, you're saying again, now wait a minute. The Bible clearly says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, no one can see God. So which is it? Well, there are some texts in the Bible that, um, you know, that would argue that point. You cannot see God. 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 17. Um, 1 Timothy 1, 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. Um, Exodus 33, 20, uh, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Deuteronomy 4, 12. Uh, I mean, on and on and on, right? Like there are, um, there are places in the Bible where it makes really, really clear you cannot look upon God. Why? Well, because God is completely holy um, and completely other and spirit. Let's not forget that. All right, so then we have today's promise from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. We have um, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I'd encourage you to read all of the first 18 verses. I'm going to highlight here that verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, except the one who made him known. Aha, except the one who made him known. Genesis 32, 30. Um, Job 19. After my uh, skin is going to be destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I'll see him for myself. My eyes shall behold him. And in Jesus, we do see God. Hebrews uh, 1, verse 3, and then John 14, 8, 8 to 18. Again, great passages for us to read and consider um, in terms of how Jesus shows us the Father, how Jesus exegetes the Father. So, which is it? Well, I think it's both. The Bible uses two senses of the word see. So while we cannot see God, some do see God even now, right? And one day, faith shall become sight, and we shall see him face to face. And that, 
Well, I can only imagine. Our friend Dave Buring is going to join us next. We're going to talk about the information overload we all experience. And then we're going to talk about... Hey, our friend Dave Buring is back. You can find Dave and lots of resources that are absolutely worth your attention at lionshare.org. Dave, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. <sighs> okay, so we're going to actually talk about something you talked about with someone else on a podcast that I listened to. <laughs> so um, information overload is is the subject matter. And you were on a podcast called The False Jesus Podcast. So first of all, why don't you introduce us to Kent Chevalier and his ministry, and then maybe, um, you know, the what your conversation with Kent grew out of, and we can then move forward into our conversation today. Sure. So Kent and I have been friends since about 2003. He came with his youth group to a, a youth camp that I led that was called Acts Alive. And since that time, we've just been friends walking together. He's a little younger leader than I am. And so I've had the privilege of just pouring into him the best I can. And he's just a, a very godly man, a loving husband, a great dad. And he currently has the privilege of serving as the chaplain for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so he walks with a lot of 20s and 30s, as Carmen, you and I do as well. And so we've had conversations more just generationally of noticing how uh, those in their 20s and 30s, because of their access to so many things online, can kind of pick and choose sources for even being fed spiritually. And we, we have had conversation about the difference between, you know, information and what is something that God gives or revelation and the diet on which we are feeding ourselves spiritually. So that was, that was kind of what the conversation was built around. When I think about information overload, um, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, this, this reality, like in, information is actually multiplying in real time um the mm -hmm. the data uh the data that's out there the things that can be known um and that people mm -hmm. think they do know um discoveries you know developments new technologies on and on and on talk, talk about just how overwhelming the crush of information is and sort of where that leaves us as uh, you know i mean i'm I'm so limited, Dave, right? I mean, I, you know, I work hard to aggregate as much information as possible and um, and pay attention to as much as I can, but there's an awful lot I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I remember back in the, gosh, this had to be early 1990s when I got my first, um, you know, opportunity to get online and have email. And, you know, my email was, you know, a combination of, uh numbers that I didn't pick. And I remember the, the, the truth, quote unquote, being shared around this was this is going to make life just so much easier. <laughs> you know, and the idea was that, hey, within a company, you know, you didn't have to send physical notices, you could, and sticky notes, you could just send an email and hey, and all that's true. But I think what none of us fully realized was just the plethora of information that we would have to now manage. And like you said, it just multiplies every single day. And, you know, to be really honest, I've had thoughts like, does God really intend for me to manage this much? 
Like I go back to when my grandfather and grandmother were farmers in northern Minnesota, let's call it the 19, you know, 30s and 40s, you know, what they managed was they're on the farm and then relating well to their community, which, you know, sometimes they took a horse-drawn carriage to and their church, which was about four miles away that they would, you know, jump into their carriage and go to. Eventually they had a car to go to. It, it just so seems like a different planet you know to me mm -hmm. of what they dealt with and managed and uh, because of online presence the bombardment is is just unbelievable i gotta i gotta think that you know if they were alive today you know my grandparents who would be well over 100 and they were looking at this they would going what in the world you know so yeah it's it's it can be overwhelming uh it, it not it, it it's more than it can be overwhelming. I think it is overwhelming. And so yes. let's talk a little bit today about um, discernment, because mm -hmm. I just know a lot of people, and I know you do as well, um, they are not just getting their information from, let's say, social media or social media influencers. They mm -hmm. are getting their theology there as well. Um, yeah. They're not just following people on social media. They are following the pattern of the thoughts, the speech pattern, the life, the example of um, of people in the culture who may, may self-identify as Christians. But if you were really to put that to the test, like it, this just doesn't prove itself out in terms of fruit. So can you talk with us about um, how do we know who to trust and what to trust in terms of the information that's out there? Yeah, I think it's really important. And this was where Kent's conversation with me was going in his podcast because he he was running into this very same thing of people that he was pouring into um grabbing content from their quote favorite speaker. And and yet as he was hearing some of it for their sake was concerned, like what the the mix was of what they were kind of was it was like their spiritual online cocktail that they had that was like really concerning. And, and, you know, when we are hearing things, you know, even Carmen, I know you would say this from your own show, it's like, we have to match this stuff up to scripture. Absolutely. Is, is, is this thing biblical? And so I think one of the first questions we can ask is, is what I'm hearing scriptural. So if you've, if you're hearing something that sounds off to you, and to be honest, for me, um, that's kind of my first go-to. I might not be able to put my finger on it immediately, but something that I'm hearing that's running through my mind, my heart, my spirit, I'm going, something is off with this. And um, is what you want to do is go to some older, wiser leaders and say, hey, this is something that I'm hearing. Does this sound scriptural to you? Does this sound right? Like, for example, there was a nation I was traveling in, Carmen, and, and they they would not wear red in this particular part of the body of Christ. And so they told me when I came, Hey, just don't, don't wear any red. It'll cause some people to stumble. They, this person was fine with it, but they were saying, okay. and I said, can I ask why? And they said, yeah, because there's a belief here that because the blood of Jesus was red and it was shed for us and he died for us, that it is dishonoring to the Lord to wear the color red. And I, so I didn't bring anything red, but then when I got down there, you know, digging into that a little bit, and it was just somebody's kind of spiritualizing of something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and yet when you go to scripture, you don't see anything about that at all. 
Um, you, you might have a husband who say, hey, I'm the head of my home. I, I can treat my wife however I want. Something should sound off on that because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that a husband is to lay his life down for his wife. And so when you when you hear things that are off, that are coming from an online source, the first thing you want to do is say, is this scriptural? And if something feels off to you, take what you're hearing and go to somebody that's a little older and wiser in the Lord and ask them about it. So let me um, let me push back um, and then we can I'm going to push back and then we're going to go to a break because, you know, that okay. sounds like a good tease for the conversation. Um <laughs> You you ask me to um, allow my feelings to be the gauge there. Does something feel off? But if my feelings are not already um, attuned to and somewhat aligned with um, the spirit, uh, the reality of who God is and what God has said, if I don't already know some of who God is, his character and his will, um, my feelings barometer might be broken. Can we talk about uh, our feelings as a gauge when we come back? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So you're listening uh, to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We're talking with our friend Dave Buring from LionShare. You can find Dave at lionshare.org. Are your feelings a good barometer of the truth? Well, when when are they and when are they not? And how how do you know when it's time to... Take something you've heard online, offline, and test it with somebody with some spiritual maturity. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, this is Carmen from the Mornings with Carmen show. Who's your pastor? This is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so I want you to think about who is your pastor or who are your pastors? Who shepherds your heart? Who gives you wise and faithful counsel? Who comes alongside to encourage you as you walk difficult stretches of the road? Who opens the Word of God to you in ways that actually help you live into the character and ways of God. Who are your pastors? Do they know it? It's possible you have lots of answers to this question, that maybe there is somebody who's preaching or teaching you listen to regularly. They shape your scripture engagement, but they don't know it. I'm encouraging you to tell them. Whoever it is that comes to mind when I say, who is your pastor? I want you to reach out to them this month. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. So encourage those who pastor you. Oh, and if you are a pastor, thank you. Bless you. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. We're talking with our friend Dave Buring from Lion Share. You can find him at lionshare.org. Uh, Dave, we're talking about information overload. We're also talking about how we discern um, what is uh, information that is true and truthful and leads us uh, into truth and that which is not. So when we hear or read something online um, and and it feels off to us, uh, I think that only works if I'm a person whose, you know, like feelings are already somehow attuned to uh, to the spirit of Christ versus the spirit of the world. Yes. And so thanks for pinpointing that. I, when I say feel it, remember I'm, I'm talking scripturally. So there's, it's like scripture is our reference point for truth. And so what I'm talking about here is maybe another way I would say it is the internal discernment mm -hmm. because the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in you. And I think oftentimes we aren't discipled to pay attention to, 
to what is that like on the inside? And so the way I often will describe this is what did this feel like to you spiritually? So it's not mm-hmm. your emotions. It's not, you know, flighting feelings. It's it's an internal discernment that that you learn, hey, what's going on in here? And sometimes it's, you know, it's so obvious that your ears alone just discern it. In other words, just as soon as that thing goes in your ears, you go, yeah, that's off, you know. But then there's mm-hmm. other things that you hear and at first blush you might go hmm and just inside something goes yeah there's something off about this so i am referring to like an internal discernment that is based on god's word and is something that the holy spirit the combination of the word of god in us the holy spirit dwelling in us alerts us to yeah does it echo and reflect what i know to be the character and the will of god does it uh, would Jesus agree with this? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, does it sound scriptural? Does it resonate? I think resonance might be a good word for us here mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And then, and then you we recommend that you know, like I test that, I test that, I go and I, I take, I take this online thing offline, and I go have a real conversation with a real person um, who is more mature than I am, and I ask them. Um, and I think this, this sort of, you know goes back to, I think, the last conversation that we had here, which is we we all need to be in relationship with people who are more mature than us spiritually, further along the road of discipleship. But we also need to be available to and um, and friends of people who are less mature than us. They're, they're, they're right. at a, you know, they are not as far along the journey or the path of discipleship as we are. Um, can you just, you know, I don't know, uh, hit that nail again? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there's something very important to paying attention to the fact that oftentimes we hang with our peers and, mm-hmm. you know, people who are generally within, you know, our age ballpark. Um, you've heard me share before, Carmen, that when I look at scripture, I see when Jesus talks about, you know, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's like, like what is that? What does that mean? And now I've added my own sheen to this and I will acknowledge that. But for me, I recognize that we have one body of Christ. If people love Jesus, they're part of our family and they're part of the body of Christ. But within the body of Christ, you have some Abrahams, Isaacs and Jacobs. And don't take that as a male, female thing. Just the, the idea that Abraham. So think of the context of those relationships. Abraham would have been a grandfather. And then you've got Isaac, that would have been his son. And then you got Jacob, that was like his grandson. And so the way I look at it is I just kind of peg an age 60-ish and over kind of Abrahams that, you know, what do they bring to the table? Well, they bring, you know, lots of experience and seasoned wisdom to the table. And you got the Isaacs, let's call them people maybe in their 40s and 50s who are running in life, but they have a level of understanding. And then you've got the Jacobs, who are their 20s and 30s, who they bring fresh perspective and passion. And you know what? We need all of it. It, It's Mm -hmm. like, that's what we got to, if you're a young person, you got to stop saying, man, these older folks, they've had their time. It's time for them to step off the stage, so to speak, and just go play some golf and do some other things and travel. They don't need it. That is not a biblical paradigm. Just as it's not for older people to go, golly, these young ones, what in the world? How can they think this way and that way? Uh-uh. We have to look at them through the eyes of what Jesus is raising up in them as a generation and the things he's given them as tools, the things he's given them to sharpen them, the things that he's given that will be challenges to them that older ones can come alongside. 
So, you know, if, if you're an Isaac, let's say you're in your 40s and 50s and you're listening to this today, ask yourself the question, who are the Abrahams in my life that I invite mm-hmm. to speak into my life? And then look and say, who are the Jacobs in my life that I have favor with, that I can begin to pour the things of God and come alongside and be a help to? So you kind of get a feel for what I mean by that. Hey, one thought might be if you um, are a person of a certain age and you are headed to a conference, um, you are headed um, to to go and listen to someone or um, to a book group, take someone who's younger than you with you, pay their way, invite them to go along um, so that you can have a shared experience. And then you can, you know, you can sort through that information together and you can talk with that a younger one about the process of transformation. One of the things we've talked with uh, Dave a lot about uh, over the course of time is the process of transformation. If you missed any of those conversations, they're all still available at MyFaithRadio.com as well as at LionShare and on the LionShare app. Dave, as always, um, thank you so much. What a delight. My delight too. Have a great day today. Likewise, likewise. That's Dave Buring. You can find him at Lionshare, lionshare.org. If you need a, if you need a um, process of discipleship, if you, you've never been discipled and you want to be, great resources at Lionshare. And also, if you want to be discipling others and you're like, I, I want to be a disciple maker, um, I just, I don't know how to do that. Yep. Resources at lionshare.org to equip you in that way as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, well, uh, we have a new clock on the show today, and although that doesn't mean anything to you, it's supposed to mean something to me, so I want to just go ahead and apologize to my producer, Paul, because ah, no problem. I, I know. It, it, happens. I can't, it happens. I can't read the sheet of paper you've had in front of me. So, uh, yeah, so thank you to our friend Adam Carrington um, for joining us a couple of minutes early. All right, here's what's going on in the headline news that we're going to ask Adam to help us bring into focus today. The U.S. government is actually continuing to operate. Fully today, uh, Congress averted a government shutdown. The House um, voted on a bipartisan basis, 335 to 91, for a short-term funding bill known as a continuing resolution. Um, and that short-term bill is, you know, got 45 days. So the clock is ticking. It's going to expire just before Thanksgiving. Um, and so that is happening um, there is a representative from Florida who has already said he's going to seek to oust Kevin McCarthy as the House Speaker because um, of this process that uh, that some among um, the the Republican uh, majority did not appreciate. You will note that there were 91 votes against this CR. Uh, 90 of them were Republicans. So all of that is going on. Um, Senator Dianne Feinstein died over the weekend as well. The Supreme Court begins a new session today. So we thought we would talk about all of that with our friend, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, welcome. Glad to be with you, Carmen. And uh, uh, we'll see how I do on the clock. All right. Well, it's um, it's also World Farm Animal Day. If you, you know, if you just wanted to weigh in on something else. Just saying, like, right, there's all kinds of options before us. All right, so let's well, start with the some government. Some of this seems like a zoo, though. I know, right. totally. It is, a, it is a bit of a zoo. Uh, the government shutdown that wasn't. Um, is there like a so what and a what now kind of uh, kind of line here? 
A bit. I think it's really going to be what are the political outcomes that come from the next 45 days. And mm-hmm. as far as uh, Florida people, we also had a Democratic congressman from Florida during the vote pulling the fire alarm to try to delay tactics. So I, I, I don't know if Florida was bathing <laughs> itself in glory representatively. Uh, Florida both, man. Both Florida man. Exactly. Those are just all the Florida man headlines. Exactly. Um, I, I, I so the 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 continuing resolution basically keeps all funding going the way it was um a private pre, prior to this so there's no major change there i think it's going to be two issues one is something that was left off was additional funding for ukraine and there is certainly especially a segment of the republican party that is against continuing that funding uh and so the question is going to be even though they're I don't think a majority of the House, how much leverage are they going to have going forward for the next 45 days? And that leads to the second thing, which is the future of Speaker McCarthy, who worked with Democrats across the aisle to get this done. And as you said, now uh, Matt Gates in Florida, a Republican representative, is going to try to oust him as Speaker. And the question is going to be, do the Democrats want to do that to really bludgeon the Republican Party because they would need the Democrats to go along with that? Are they going to go the other way and and try to save him since he seems someone that they can at least at times work with? And what does that mean for the future of a very narrow Republican majority into 2024 trying to actually govern when uh, they have really no margin for error but they seem to be reduced to the kind of infighting that people may have forgotten this started um, the entire session. If anyone remembers the multiple rounds of voting just to pick McCarthy as a speaker and some of the exact same people are causing uh, uh, instigating this sort of fighting right now. So can this Republican coalition hold together? Um, it's going to have to if it's going to govern at all, but it's not clear whether that's going to be the case. We, we've got about 45 more days to see. Let's, um, having looked at the House, let's, uh, let's pivot over and take a peek at the Senate. Um, Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein died. She was 90 years old. Um, I think there are probably a lot of folks who only know um, you know, what this very, very late season of life has looked like and some of the controversies surrounding, you know, the fact that she she should have uh, retired. Um, but really, she's an extraordinary, extraordinary person. And uh, and the story of her um, of her career, her political career is is significant. Absolutely. She grew up in San Francisco and was actually after working uh, at a lower level in the um, in, in the in the city government and not ru- and not successfully running for mayor. She had she had failed a couple bids. She had announced that in the ni- 1978 that she was going to get out of politics. And that very day, the mayor of San Francisco and another colleague of hers in the Democratic Party, uh, Harvey Milk, was were assassinated. And uh, she's the one that had to actually announce it. She became the acting mayor, went on to win twice herself and go on to become, um, you know, the longest serving uh, uh, female senator in in Senate history after she was elected there in 92 and uh, really did live a very extraordinary career, uh, one that um, 
you know, is going to make her a, 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 a famous, you know, very well known throughout uh, California history in particular, which is the state that she served from beginning to end. So yes, that a lot of what her end of her career was, was wrapped in controversy with should she have retired and was she uh, progressive enough for the modern Democratic Party? But she was also a lion of the California Democratic Party and the National Democratic Party uh, that I think is what she's going to be long term remembered for. It's interesting to me that, um, you know, she's raised. uh, I don't know if I have which parent I have correct correct here a jewish uh jewish mother and a roman catholic father or vice versa i can't remember which is which I, here i believe it was vice versa her father was one of the first i think surgeons uh or directors of, of surgery i'd have to double check that but he was a trailblazer himself that uh she very much aligned herself with or very much felt that she was continuing a kind of legacy that he had he had trailed uh, blazed for her <laughs> Yeah, and she um, she went to Catholic schools growing up. I thought that was an interesting um, interesting note. I was also remembering um, the question that she asked of now Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett about um, you know the dogma of her Catholic faith and like how you know how how you know does the dogma of your faith loom large? Like you know what is really pressing you in terms of. Um, of the way you intend to make decisions on the bench. I do think that, you know, those are the interesting conversations for those of us who, you know, are seeking to find a way to have a conversation um, on a given day about a given headline. And obviously um, we could have just a purely political conversation about Dianne Feinstein. We could also have, you know, a conversation about um, the the times in which she was raised and uh, growing up in a, in a household where there was more than one person of faith and those were different faiths. And that um, might've been somewhat unusual um, uh, that long ago, um, but not unusual at all today. And, you know, how do we navigate that? How do we expect our children to navigate that? What is it, you know, what does it mean to uh, define oneself as Jewish or Roman Catholic or some combination of the two? Like, you know, syncretism is real. And I think she was a really good example of, what it looks like for a person to cobble together their own set of ideas. And, you know, that, that frankly, Adam, doesn't, um, that doesn't pass the test of truth. You, it, it can't be just anything that you want it to be. I mean, there, there must be truth with a capital T, and, um, and we got to put a stake in the ground when we find it. And I think with that, it does, it does matter that she grew up in an era increasingly where a kind of uh, self-actualization or self-definition mattered where that kind of syncretism was more acceptable. Um, but I think you're right that when you, when you treat those kind of questions in the way that, you know, in many ways, I think she had to growing up or felt she had to given, given, um, you know, that split in her parents, um, it does ask, you know, what, to the degree to which you dictate to the truth and the truth dictates to you. Um, And I think another thing that will matter with this, and it would be interesting how her upbringing maybe affected this is, you know, some of the causes she championed. I mean, we know that she was big on uh, gun control legislation, but it's because in part she watched colleagues suffer the effects of, of, of uh, gun violence. 
At the same time, her support for abortion rights, um, uh, uh, same-sex marriage, you know, other things, you know, where where exactly did that come from beyond growing up in the San Francisco community? Um, and, and how does that uh, affect, you know, our, our look on uh, on our upbringing as well? I think those are all questions of, you know, in many ways, how does your life form you and how much are you forming your life is is an interesting question to come out of uh, her own very long life since she was about 90 years old. Mm. Um, all right, let's um, let's pivot and let's talk about uh, um, what's going on in the Supreme Court. They they begin a new session today. What um, what do you see on the horizon for this new Supreme Court term? It could be a, a pretty big one. I mean, not as big as obviously they've had in the last couple years, but I think one thing uh, on on regular cases, there's going to be a case about Florida and Texas trying to limit what social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, what they can edit of the content that's on their site. And is that a First Amendment issue? So the regulation of, of big media platforms is going to be up. There uh, is going to be probably a, there's going to be a court case about the uh, selling uh, uh, over the counter or not over the counter, but uh, abortion uh, like Plan B and other abortion pills um, across state lines. And, and what's the legal status of that? Uh, but I think the biggest theme right now, and they haven't taken every case they'll take, they'll take some more as the term goes on, because the term will go to the end of June, is the the power of, of federal agencies. There's a number of cases about how either the federal agencies are funded, uh, how they treat people, uh, uh, how agencies treat people. And what the legal rights are of people when agencies try to prosecute or go after them. And uh, also just the degree to which the court defers to them. And Mm. this may not seem immediately like a big issue for regular people, but so much of our lives now are interactions with bureaucratic officials, government, you know, administrative officials, either at the state or federal level. And they have amassed a, a significant amount of power to make a government run. And the question is, to what degree is that a problem for separation of powers? To what degree is it a problem for the control that the people's representatives in Congress have over them uh, to make sure that they're doing things according to the will of we the people? And uh, these cases, there's at least three of them right now that all could be a big impact in 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 the court trying to assess what role should they have in our constitutional republic. And I think that could be something to watch as well. All right, we're going to continue our conversation here with Dr. Adam Carrington in just a moment. We're going to bring religious liberty um, into focus. When you think about concerns related to your religious freedom, your religious liberty here in the United States of America, you might think about um, the ways in which over the course of time, Maybe people who have focused on religious liberty have um, been largely on um, on the religious right. Well, increasingly, religious liberty has become the like go to um, for people on the religious left. It's also evaporating for others around the world. We're going to talk about those concerns next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with our friend, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, um, I was reading 
at religionnews.com. Religious liberty is becoming a go-to right for everyone. A legal strategy pioneered by the right has now been adopted by the left. What's going on here? Well, the the Supreme Court over the, over really more than the last couple of years, although it's even stepped up the last couple of years, has been very um, protective of uh, uh, religious claims, religious liberty claims against majority laws or laws passed by majorities. And you're right that that has predominantly been the people that tend to be more conservative, either theologically or politically, who are looking to have um, exceptions to general laws or uh, protections from from lawmaking majorities so that they can uh, practice their religion freely. And with um, especially in, in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade being overturned and a number of states putting in uh, uh, more pro-life laws in light of uh, 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 the success that uh, conservatives have had, there are bubbling up, although a lot of them haven't really gotten through the court systems too far, uh, claims by the political left or the religious left of religious freedom rights against some of these conservative or more right-leaning laws, which is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, the idea being that uh, you know that the, the the religious liberty is not merely something on one side or the other of the ideological or theological spectrum. It needs to be protected across the board. So we'll be interested to see what happens when some of these, and they will eventually get up to the Supreme Court. Um, so religious liberty, let's just talk about what what it is and what it means here in the United States of America. Um, what what is it? I mean, what what is my First Amendment right to the free exercise of um, of religion? And maybe how is it related to free speech? Because it feels like these two are are related, but they're not the same. Right. There are two different clauses in the First Amendment. One says Congress shall make no law um, violating the infringing on the free exercise of religion. There's a second separate clause saying that Congress shall make no law uh, infringing on the freedom of speech. And um, the reason that you're right that they are at least being seen as partly going together is the the, the court case just last summer with involving the photographer in Colorado who argued that um, part of her uh, religious freedom, her religious liberty, was her First Amendment right to speak freely. And the court sided with her on that. Uh, and so I think going forward, the interaction of those two, to what degree the free exercise clause itself is an independent right and to what degree it comes out in the in the free speech right is going to be important. And part of the reason that happened was tactical. Um, the uh, free exercise clause has been interpreted less um, as a less uh, robust protection for religious liberty than the free speech clause over the last 30 years, where uh, under the free exercise clause, the basic point is that um, you, you, you have the right to be treated equal to everyone else, but not to get any special protection for your religious belief, whereas mm -hmm. the free speech right is seen as a special protection. So I think that's part of what's playing out between those two. I, I think the free exercise clause should give more robust protection for free exercise of religion apart from the First Amendment. But that's not where the Supreme Court is. And that's why you're seeing this melding of the two rights. 
Okay, and then we could bring into focus, um, you know, a couple of different instances where people have been um, fired from their jobs um, because of something that they regarded as protected speech and protected, you know, protection of their religious rights, right, religious freedom, and and employers who say, well, no, what you've what you've done. Um, is offensive to someone else. It's, um, it's, yes, we recognize that maybe you as a believer of this, in this particular faith expression, you find this appropriate, but the way you have expressed it is offensive to other people. Do you see the, you you see the knife edge where we're now going to be asked to walk here? Yeah. And I think this is something that we are going to have to work out. And it's part also of having such a a pardon me, religiously diverse society, and also a growing amount of people who are not religiously affiliated in any way or are openly secular. And this, this, and part of this is going to have to be settled not just legally. We can't reduce it all to legality. Some of it is going to have to be what we believe are the demands of respect and civility for each other in our normal interactions, and 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 that interplay of the legal. And the and the no, cultural norms we we just don't have a platelet for right now because we have, we're entering kind of uncharted territory with the way our our society has both secularized and diversified in its religious beliefs and Supreme Court's trying to work it out on the uh, legal level but I think society needs to not just leave it to that they have to start working out what this looks like for them and their and our day to day interactions as well. I, I think that's absolutely true. So as you go uh, forth into this day, it's not just about, you know, what your rights are and um, and claiming your rights. It's also about, you know, respecting others and their rights as well. And there is civility and mutual respect necessary, kindness necessary. Um, you know, there's no need to be uh, provocative beyond what is appropriate in terms of civil discourse and the treatment of others. So all of that uh, said, thank you, Adam, so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Hey, do you know um, what new laws have taken effect where you live? Are you are you aware of new laws that are in effect? So let's say you live in Connecticut. Good morning, Hartford, by the way. Um, I'm just going to use Connecticut as my exemplar here because it is the 2nd of October and in most states across the country, uh, new laws took effect yesterday. And so I just, I'm bringing Connecticut into focus because their list was really easy to find this morning. Um, and frankly, that was just the first state that God brought to mind. So there you have it. Um, Connecticut, here you go. In 2013, Connecticut passed some of the most stringent gun control laws in the country following the deadly shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, which we certainly all remember. Well, yesterday, um, the new law uh, took effect in Connecticut. It's already being contested, but it did take effect yesterday. Um, you cannot care, open carry any firearm in the state of Connecticut. Um, it also prohibits the sale of more than three handguns within 30 days to any one person. Um, so that's going on there. Um, also, up until yesterday, it was um, illegal to kill a bear mm-hmm, in Connecticut, even one that was killing somebody. So that changed. So that seems good. Uh, what laws changed where you are and what does the change in laws tell us? Uh, again, not, not just about what's legal or illegal, but what's moral and acceptable and appropriate and kind and just and merciful. Yeah. The necessity of making something illegal reveals a lot about the status of our national morality. 
All right, we got another hour up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.